Good morning, good afternoon. My name is Natalia Banulescu Bogdan, and I'm the Associate Director of the International Program at the Migration Policy Institute. Welcome to our webinar on Public Narratives on Refugees, Sustaining Solidarity in Times of Crisis. First, uh, let's just dispense with a few housekeeping notes. Um, if you have any technical problems on the webinar, please email events at migrationpolicy.org um, or call plus one two zero two two six six nineteen twenty nine. We will have a question and answer portion at the end of the call. Uh, please type any questions you have into the Q&A box, or you can email events at migrationpolicy.org. This webinar highlights some findings from our new report released just this morning, which is available on MPI's website, From Fear to Solidarity, the Difficulty in Shifting Public Narratives About Refugees. This report was produced as part of the project Beyond Territorial Asylum, Making Protection Work in a Bordered World, which is a three-year joint initiative by MPI and the Robert Bosch Stiftung to identify new approaches to facilitate access to protection for forced migrants. Uh, so we're so pleased to have Rafaela Schweiger from Bosch with us here this morning. Uh, Rafaela is the Program Director for Migration at the Robert Bosch Stiftung, where she has been a very close partner on this work. So it's only fitting that she started us off today with some introductory remarks. Rafaela, over to you. Thank you, Natalia. And it's great to, to be here and a warm welcome also on behalf of the Robert Bosch uh, Foundation. And I think discussing how to sustain solidarity towards um, refugees in the context of Ukraine comes at a key moment for several reasons. One, because the discussion is on the agenda of so many diverse actors in Europe and beyond, and surely so many here um, uh, joining us um, from policymakers on a national and European level to civil society actors, also foundations um, and individuals and many more. And second, because we are still in the overall moment of solidarity. So there is still momentum to, to think about these questions very strategically. And I think um, both the, the, the paper by MPI, but also this webinar surely will, will help us start and kickstart a conversation and, and connect the dots. And I wanna open the discussion with three main questions that I think we all should um, ask ourselves. Uh, first, while we currently experience great solidarity in Europe and beyond, both in action and support to refugees, as well in the public attitude and framing, how do we deal with and avoid what I would call kind of a hospitality fatigue? So we cannot compare the situation to 2015, 16, 40, as we have a completely different situation. We have different groups arriving. Um, we still can draw a lot of learnings. Um, and I speak from you um, from, from Berlin, Germany right now. And what we experienced here in, um, in, in the years of 2015-16 was great solidarity and welcoming, overwhelming solidarity, actually, and then a quick and drastic tipping point in public attitudes and, and narratives. And there might be a tipping point here too. So, so how do we how would how do we deal and work with that? And we already see conflicts amongst different societal groups and um, also within um, immigrant groups here. And one, but not the answer, could be um, a consistent messaging and, and narratives versus a very contrasting and potentially blame game that we saw um, in 2015-16. In um, second, I think we need to 
um, think about and be strategic about who do we need to reach in our work on the long run. And um, we, when we look at data and research, and we will hear from colleagues um, here now later in this webinar, is um, how societies perceive immigration and we can learn a lot from those data and, and research. And um, for many European countries and beyond, we have key data from, from many actors across the space. And we can learn from that and we can use those data, we can further develop those data, we can work with focus group to really understand our societies um, uh, that, we, that we work in and that we live in. And then the key question, and I think we will get back to that, is how to reach those that are sitting on the fence. Um, and for example, we as a foundation try to work and support a diversity of actors and bring them into a conversation, also difficult conversations, because we think that not only supporting pro-immigrant groups, but really um, working with, with the whole of society on those critical issues. And it's also important, I think, to work with um, and support coalitions of civil society organizations um, within national context, but also in in Europe and helping reframing the narrative and, and keep up the solidarity going forward. And one example and one key partner for us is the European Programme for Integration and Migration and, and they're, they're key um, working on this. And also how we build a more coordinated approach on this um, across Europe. So let's not preach to the converted and work with those actors um, from, from across the space. And I think the third question is, um, how do we use this momentum of solidarity for a broader debate and work towards supporting migrants and refugees, not only from, from Ukraine? Um, and solidarity, I think, has a life cycle and we can and shouldn't rely only on individuals, civil society actors, individuals engaging in the space, um, but really invest in broader civil society, local authorities in, 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 in conjunction with um, governments and prepare for the long haul. And we also need to bear in mind um, the ongoing racism, unequal treatment, and, and thinking about how to make a case um, for broader um, a group of people arriving um, in, in Europe from, from all across seeking refuge. I think these are just a few questions and there are many more, but I um, want to leave it at that and hand it back to you, Natalia, and I really look forward to this panel and discussion. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Rafaela. I think that was a really helpful start to frame why this issue is important and start to think about how we can productively invest in this space. Um, I want to offer um, just a few remarks of my own to sort of frame some of these issues and build on what Rafaela said um, before we launch into our panel. Um, so, you know, you've given us this perspective of, you know, what happened in Germany in 2015, 2016. Um, we have, you know, we're going to hear other examples um, from speakers on this call about how narratives around refugees are often polarized and you know, artificially pulled to the extremes. Um, we see refugees and asylum seekers alternatively depicted as heroes or security threats, victims or exceptional workers, sometimes all at once. And policy responses have similarly kind of ping-ponged between greater openness and restriction. We see very recent efforts to restrict access to asylum at the US southern border or across the English Channel, existing alongside 
um, quite remarkable efforts to legalize millions of Venezuelans in Latin America and expand private sponsorship channels for displaced Afghans and Ukrainians. So while public opinion is often depicted as this binary choice of for or against, we see in fact a real duality that manifests itself both in how people perceive threats and opportunities around them and a similar tension in how this translates into policies toward humanitarian migrants. And it's of course, you know, not a, a direct line. So it feels particularly urgent today to disentangle this puzzle between why and when certain groups are viewed as a threat or a cost and why others are seen as a benefit or a source of pride and, and try to tease out some of the patterns and especially important to anticipate the tipping points where public opinion palpably shifts and anxiety becomes dominant. So I'm just gonna throw out two observations. Um, first, we sometimes assume attitudes are more rigid and durable than they really are. I think surveys sometimes give us this false confidence that the sentiment they measure is fixed or doesn't have an expiration date, when in reality, the strength of people's beliefs can ebb and flow with changing external conditions. And this is because anxiety and compassion toward refugees tends to live side by side. It's not mutually exclusive and not necessarily contradictory. People can experience both pride in their country's humanitarian response and compassion for vulnerable groups alongside fear and anxiety over changing cultural norms or competition for jobs. And these concerns can become more or less salient under different circumstances or at different stages of crisis. And I think this is the crux of our job to understand how this happens. Uh, the second observation is that solidarity is not rare. Compassion and pride are found almost everywhere. The problem, as Rafaela alluded to, is it can be difficult to sustain over long periods of time, and it's not always sticky or transferable. I mean, we've seen recent examples of large-scale displacement that have triggered enormous solidarity. Colombians welcoming nearly 2 million Venezuelans, Turks welcoming nearly 4 million Syrians, now Poland welcoming over 2 million Ukrainians in an extremely short period of time. And in these cases, newcomers were welcomed into host communities where they shared a common history, common political opponents, cultural and religious proximity, in some cases, common or similar language. But we've also seen host communities eventually bump up against the practical limits of their generosity. So after the emergency phase of a crisis, we see practical concerns about the future begin to dominate, including whether newcomers are able to find jobs and become self-sufficient, and real concerns about whether refugees are integrating or living parallel lives. And critically, these concerns can become prominent even in places where we've seen immense short-term solidarity on cultural or political grounds. So in other words, these feelings of brotherhood, pride, compassion, they're extraordinarily powerful, but they also don't neutralize everyday sources of friction that all groups living side by side tend to face. And so just to 
just to close, I think the sum of these two observations is that a narrow focus on changing attitudes might be an unrealistic goal in an environment where we know that people hold multiple competing beliefs at once. Instead, maybe how people prioritize certain concerns over others is where we might have the most possibilities for change. And underneath most opposition to humanitarian flows, we have to understand that there lie very practical concerns that need to be addressed. Things like job losses, pressures on housing, overburdened infrastructure, and people are more likely to be generous if they feel a sense of hope for their own future and a sense that opportunities are distributed equally. So I think our job is to better understand at a very granular level the conditions under which positive and negative sentiments flourish and how policies, all of our policy tools can be leveraged to make people feel that supporting refugees is not something imposed upon them, but in fact, something that furthers their own goals. And this is what we're going to try to do today on this webinar, um, or at least start to chip away at. We have three excellent panelists with us today with diverse areas of expertise who are going to help us get at some of these questions from different angles. Um, so first we have Steve Ballinger, who is the communications director at British Future, who's done some fa fascinating research looking at how public support toward refugees and asylum seekers has ebbed and flowed over time in the United Kingdom and how this intersects with policy decisions. Uh, so Steve, can you start us off um, by helping us understand this ambivalence in public opinion and what strategies British Future has developed to build public support over the long run? Sure, great, thanks, Natalia. I'm gonna share my screen because I've got a few slides uh, to show you. So let me just check that I can do that and that works. There we go. And uh, hopefully people can see that okay. Um, so yeah, I, I work for British Future. We're a think tank uh, looking at issues of immigration, identity, race, and integration with a particular focus on UK public attitudes and communication. And it's on these, these UK attitudes uh, and what they mean for comms and campaigning and policy that I'm gonna speak uh, about briefly today. Um, so first, a little bit of context in the UK. Um, overall UK public attitudes have softened significantly in the last decade, especially since the referendum in, in 2016 on, on EU membership. People, uh, most people felt negative back in 2015 or they felt that immigration had had a negative impact on Britain. That's now flipped completely and 46% people feel positive, 29% negative. Um, there's also steady support for the, for the principle of refugee protection and that stayed, um, the figures we've got here show since 2019, that stayed around seven, in, seven out of 10 people agreeing with that principle. Um, and um, there's obviously strong support for protecting Ukrainian refugees as well. 77% support, just 12% opposition in the UK. And that cuts across political tribes as well. Um, and then the, the, the Ukraine crisis has, of course, softened attitudes further as well to refugees. So this YouGov tracker, which asks uh, polls people at six monthly interviews, shows that take more refugees is now up 10 points. Uh, at 40%, take fewer refugees is down 11 points 
15%. So you've got about seven in 10 people in the UK either content with the current number of, of um, refugees that Britain offers protection to or, or would like some more. Um, uh, now, some, some people are positive because of this, this new outpouring of uh, support for, for Ukraine is, is, is racialized. And uh, I think maybe that may be less strong in the UK than, than we might think. Um, there isn't a particular affinity between British, British and Ukrainian people. There isn't a particularly strong European identity either in the UK. Um, and the, 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 the strong support for um, new arrivals from Hong Kong under a, under a new visa scheme also suggests that sort of looking like us isn't one of the main considerations that people have if they're going to um, support uh, uh, more people coming to the UK. What might be happening actually is that once support gets up to this sort of 80% level, you're breaking into a group who may not be very liberal on lots of issues. Um, so it may be this group at the, at the tougher end who are actually thinking yes to Ukrainians, but, but no more thank you. Um, so that's, that could just be quite an interesting observation there on how maybe different here in the UK. Um, our polling also finds that most people are sympathetic towards migrants who are attempting to cross the English Channel as well. And that stayed true from 2019 to today. But nobody thinks that that looks like a good system of immigration and asylum when they see the images in their newspapers and on television. Um, it looks like uh, a breakdown of control over who can come uh, and can't come to the UK. And what, what we have found is control is really important to UK public attitudes. It's actually more important that to have control than to have a system that deters people from, from coming to the UK. Um, and uh, this, these images of a breakdown of control are, are one of the contributory factors to uh, public dissatisfaction with um, the government's performance on immigration. Six in 10 people now say that they're dissatisfied with the UK government, um, uh, uh, the way that the government is dealing with immigration. And um, when you ask why, um, half of that six in 10 say it's that they're not doing enough to stop channel crossings. Um, others say it's because they're allowing too many asylum seekers to come into Britain. So, so, so quite tough reasons there and because, see, because of this image of the breakdown in control that's causing that dissatisfaction. Um, if you look at those figures in more detail though, um, you can see that uh, the liberal groups, uh, people who vote Labour or, or Liberal Democrat in the UK, they're dissatisfied with the government's policy um, and the way they're handling immigration, but not because they don't think they're being tough enough. Um, the main reason that they gave is because the government is not treating asylum seekers well, was creating a, a fearful environment for migrants who want to live in Britain. So there is some, there is some nuance there and some, some division. And actually we see this reflected in uh, public attitudes to the government's new proposal to, to fly people to Rwanda if they try to seek asylum uh, in the UK and, and sort of leave them to their own devices there. Um, and this is a very polarizing uh, policy. The, the toughest third like it and the more liberal third really don't like it. Um, and I think the remaining third in between uh, are probably thinking, I think something needs to be done about these dangerous boat crossings, but I don't think sending people to Rwanda is the answer. Um, so we've, so what, what we found is that where people want from an immigration system, control and compassion, if you offer them a choice between, if you, if you say well, you've got to have control or compassion, um, then you polarize. 
Um, whereas uh, an approach that seeks to be effective, fair and humane would, would stand a much better hearing um, from the public and would get much more broader public consent. Um, and this was a, a message we polled, um, uh, which finds that 70% you know, of the public would agree um, with such a system. And it would also offer that sort of balance and middle of public opinion. It, it would offer to them the sense that um, campaigners have got constructive solutions as well as critiques of the government's approach um, to, to boat crossings. So in place of headline grabbing announcements, sometimes boring solutions that actually work uh, can be the answer. Um, and on that theme, I suppose, uh, uh, another, uh, my closing point really is another uh, issue that is seen as not very interesting, but is incredibly important. Um, and that's integration. Um, uh, in an era of high migration, you've got to make integration work. And, and in the UK, we are in a, it, despite Brexit, we're still in an era of, of quite high migration. Um, new arrivals in the UK need to be able to settle. They need to be able to become part of the communities that they join. Um, so we need to show that welcoming works. And if we want to secure public consent for uh, welcoming refugees, we need to show that welcoming works. And there's two challenges here. One is a communications challenge. Anyone who works in comms knows that good news stories are, are barely stories at all. Uh, it's very hard to get a journalist to report on somebody um, settling into a new community and getting along perfectly fine. Um, the other challenge is, is for campaigners. Um, in the DNA of campaigners is to find out what's going wrong, to highlight what's going wrong and to campaign to set it right, um, not to point out what's working very well. Um, so there's two challenges there, but it's still really important um, that we do tell these positive stories. And, and, and just one example for why we need to do that is uh, something that British Future did with the Refugee Council last year, um, which, showed, which found that positive stories can be very effective in shifting public attitudes um, and entrenching them as well on refugee protection. And to mark the 70th anniversary of the UK signing the Refugee Convention, we brought together seven refugees from each of those seven decades since 1951. And, and they just spoke about um, what uh, getting refugee protection meant to them. Um, and we tested the impact of a film of that event um, using split sample polling. Half the people saw the film, half the people didn't. We then asked them a series of questions. And what we did find, even though the messaging was incredibly soft in that film, um, was that it shifted people's attitudes by, by about 20 points across a range of, of measures. Um, now, of course, this isn't to say that um, we should stop doing campaigning and we should let the government off the hook for bad policies like its Rwanda scheme um, and just tell nice stories. Um, but we do need a both and approach. And that's, that's really the final point I, I want to make is that um, if we want to maintain public support for refugee protection, we also need to highlight the examples of where people are settling into communities, where they're making friends, they're building up social contact, and tell those stories of the welcomer and the welcomed um, coming together. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Steve. Um, you've really set the table for us here. I love how you captured perfectly this tension between how people experience compassion for vulnerable groups, yet still desire control and and we sometimes think of those 
as being an opposition. Um, but I think you're right that we need an approach that weaves both together. Um, and you've uh, set the stage nicely for um, the two other panelists we have on this webinar um, in really highlighting the importance of making integration work and showing uh, people uh, that integration works. Um, so I want to um, continue on this theme and turn next to Agnieszka Kosowicz, who is the president of the board of the Polish Migration Forum um, and has just been doing extraordinary work with refugees and NGOs on the ground. Um, Agnieszka, the last time we had you at MPI was I think six months ago, um, where the world was a very different place. Um, and I'd love for you to tell us a bit about how we can explain the extraordinary surge in solidarity we've seen for Ukrainians in Poland, not just at the civil society level, but at the political level as well, um, despite what is just an unprecedented scale and, and speed of arrivals. Um, and then just asking you to reflect um, on, and I know this is difficult, but how long is this sustainable? And are there cracks already starting to show? Over to you. Thank you very much. Um, firstly, just to make things clear, I'm a practitioner, not a researcher, so don't expect data from me, rather loose uh, thoughts or observations from the front. So please call, consider me kind of a war reporter, kind of. So um, it is indeed unprecedented what is happening. So trying to, in one minute, uh, brief you on, on uh, the environment that we are now in here in Poland, I would like to say three things. So firstly, it is uh, a shock to a country to receive three million of people, majority of them women and children, um, and majority of those arriving, in fact, over two weeks. So we have had hundreds of thousands of people arriving to specific cities a day. And um, in fact, a lot of uh, train stations or bus stations have turned into temporary, um, maybe not accommodation center, but transit centers uh, for those people that were on one hand fed by the people arriving, but on the other hand, crowds of individuals who are arriving to those stations or to the border with their private cars, with their buses, um, picking people up randomly and taking them to their homes. Uh, in Warsaw alone, for example, we have about 90% of the population that is well over 300,000 people that is located in individual houses. Uh, and sometimes this is a matter of people providing the uh, extra space that they have. Uh, I don't know, extra uh, small flats that they have inherited from parents or that they, they used to rent or just have otherwise for the family, but very often, uh, literally, people were clearing one room in their house and giving it away to a refugee family. So um, this is something we have never seen. And um, the other thing is that indeed, as, as Natalia said, we are in a reality that is 180 degrees opposite to what we have been working with over the last six months following the crisis or situation at the Polish-Belarusian border where Poland pulled all resources to stop migration or refugee or probably mixed refugee and migration flow that was provoked politically by Belarus. 
and um, treatment of these people was, in perception of many activists, inhumane or contrary to human standards, humanitarian standards. Uh, so we have been used recently to a very anti-migrant rhetoric and it was um, an issue that was conflicting the society that is already polarized and this is my third element. So um, I think maybe in the States you can compare a little bit or, or feel alike. We are a country that is super polarized right now. And this may be similar to the American experience and it makes things difficult because it um, prevents good cooperation and exchange and uh, drawing from each other's experience between different le levels of governance. So the central government, local governments and NGOs have not been best allies over the last months. And now the situation of crisis calls for this unity or solidarity or cooperation within the country, which is not there. So this is a third element of my map. Thinking about narratives or, or how people react to this or what are the opinions. Um, as it was already mentioned, Poland was uh, very, very open and lots of individual persons and civil society gathered to uh, propose help. But we already see that this um, generosity or compassion is fading away um, or a compassion fatigue takes, uh, takes over. A lot of uh, local governors, city governors receive calls from people who just cannot handle this situation anymore. Please remember that uh, when the war started, it was uh, something unbelievable. Nobody really expect, nobody believed it will happen to start with. Even on the 24th of February, when it happened, nobody believed it is actually the fact. So taking people into their homes, a lot of people believed that it is a super short-term solution, that their compassion or their generosity or their goodwill is something that is needed for a week or maybe two weeks or a month. And what happens right now, how the situation develops, um, it affects how people feel because they lost this um, conviction or thought that what we are talking about is a short-term solution, that what we need is an intervention. Now, I think it comes to a lot of people's mind that we are not talking about an intervention. We are talking a full swing humanitarian crisis that will take uh, years to solve. And I think that for, for individual persons who host the refugees in their homes, this is overwhelming uh, because they, this is not what they volunteered for. Uh, also, I think that, that this is a huge issue that state systems don't you know, come in place to, to exchange these individuals' goodwill. And this is a huge issue right now in Poland, that we don't have uh, fast enough reaction of the state. We don't have development of systems or mechanisms to make it possible, for example, for a person who is housing a psychologically unstable refugee to do something with this person or to direct this person to a professional facility. This is not happening because there is no system and also there is no, no facilities. So yes, we were very compassionate and we were very generous and what happens is uh, definitely one of a kind. But then uh, I think there are very many extra elements to, to mention that, for example, this generosity was very short term. Also, people really didn't know what they are doing and they, they would take actions based on false assumptions. We also see a flow of people going backwards to Ukraine because for them it is un unimaginable. When, like we were talking about uh, hosting a person 
that is difficult in your home. It is also difficult to be a guest for such an extended period of time. And for a lot of refugees, this choice that they are now making of going back to Ukraine is not a choice that is fueled by feeling of safety or, or a hope that their life will be good in Ukraine, but simply they cannot handle being a guest anymore. And ironically, what we realize that often persons are feeling better in these big uh, centers that are run by the cities or by the, by the central governments where you have, I don't know, hundreds of people or thousands of people, and they feel better there rather than in individual homes because they just cannot handle emotionally being a guest so long. Um, what we also observe is, um, uh, I think, kind of fashion. I don't know how to say it um, properly and not, uh, not underestimate this generosity that is taking place. But what we see is uh, really that helping refugees has become fashionable. It is cool. And it is um, kind of a desirable notion that people want to undertake to kind of bring up their social status or their self-esteem. It's um, for very many years we have been facing um, kind of a well, um, we were critical of the of companies, for example, CSR policies because they were very wafered, shallow, or, or not very involved. And right now, we, for example, do see companies that contribute half a million or million zlotys uh, to refugee calls, and we see that it is just the way to behave right now if you run a business. It becomes, you know, desirable way of, of showing your values in a completely different way and scale than we were used to. Also on an individual level, a lot of people uh, just want to show off in a way that they are helping. It is really a desirable thing to do. It's like, you know, when you show off what you have been doing over the weekend and it, it used to be biking or I don't know, um, going to the mountains. Now you show off whom you helped and where you have been and which railway station you were donating water or, or whatever else. So it has become kind of a social issue to provide this help, which is also kind of a new phenomenon. Um, preparing with Natalia to this uh, meeting today, we were also talking about language quite a lot. And maybe I will finish with this, that um, following the Belarusian uh, sector of the border or our issues before with the government, we were hoping that this new situation will bring change into narratives or government's way of presenting refugee issues. Instead, what we, what we see is that on one hand, the government is avoiding the word refugee. So very often in, in the government's rhetorics, you will hear about guests, friends, allies, fellows, other words that uh, somehow bring Ukrainians and Poles together and put them on kind of one uh, side of, of the border. Um, uh, but on the other way, on the other hand, it is underlined that the refugees that are now arriving are are the refugees, that they are proper refugees, or war refugees is often used also as an expression to bring contrast between them and everybody else who is arriving. So for example, when we, when we were hoping for this spill out effect and better tolerance or, or more humane policies at the Belarusian front, this is at all not happening. We also observe lots of questions and lots of issues with the non-white persons that arrive from Ukraine. And very often we see that they are just excluded from this overall 
notion of solidarity. Uh, quite frequently, human rights organizations need to come up with separate solutions or to the point of building separate centers for persons that are non-white. So it shows how, how to a very little extent, these non-Ukrainian populations that are arriving right now to Poland are not extending this, this helping hand as much as we would like. Uh, of course, I don't know how long it will last, <laughs> responding to your Natalia question. Uh, I don't know when the war will finish. I don't know when, when this comp compassion will finish. I see that already people are very tired and that uh, systemic solutions would be um, key at this moment. I'm very concerned because they are not here and uh, it doesn't look uh, like the government has a thorough plan or agenda to involve all the current actions into some system that is necessary. We see that lack of the system is affecting individual uh, perceptions of what is happening. Like it was already mentioned, access to many resources will become an issue very shortly. Already, for example, in Warsaw, we would need 75 new schools to accommodate the children that are in need of education, which of course will not happen anytime soon. And it will in practice mean deteriorating living conditions for a lot of people um, that have children. And uh, it is equally true on every other area. So talking about healthcare or social support or housing is a huge issue, education. Um, and basically we cannot follow up on, uh, on individuals' goodwill. It will, it will lead us to a catastrophe in my opinion. Thank you. Thank you so much, Agnieszka, for giving us um, that really important look into what is happening on the ground. Um, I think you really hit on something important in talking about that moment where people realize this isn't a short-term fight. We are in this for the long haul. And where are the support structures in place to help us plan for the long haul? Um, so I think, you know, what the government does to facilitate this transition, to ease this transition and build the systems that you need is extremely important. Um, and I also thought it was very powerful what you said about the role of social norms as well as political narratives. Um, and that you have this about face where you have both of these things going for you at the moment in Poland. Um, it's become socially desirable um, to, to, you know, to, to demonstrate the, the compassion. Um, it's politically um, permissible, but that's not enough. And I think that's um, something that we also really have to examine. And this is a perfect transition to um, our final panelist, uh, my friend Murat Erdogan, who is a professor at Ankara University, um, leads the New Migration Research Center there, who has been looking at public opinion of Syrians in Turkey um, for many, many years. Um, and I think has some really interesting lessons that we can apply to the, this current crisis. Um, because Murat, in your work, you were really able to capture this shift in public opinion when fear narratives began to dominate and Syrians began to be seen less as victims needing support and more, more as threats in different ways. Um, so we'd love to hear you describe the factors 
responsible for Turkey reaching this, this tipping point, as it were? And what lessons does this hold for, for countries like Poland? Over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Natalie, and then uh, Rafaela, also to you. And uh, I'm very happy to be here. I my my English is not enough good, but I have too much to say because we have we have unbelievable experience uh, since 2011. And then uh, I try to uh, uh, yes. Can you see my slides now? Okay. And now uh, it will be easy uh, to explain the uh, situation in Turkey and uh, in our region. Um, as I said, that we have really huge experience, and this experience is uh, not only for a governmental level, but also the social level. And then we are discussing uh, today also the social aspect. And uh, first of all, I have to, of course, uh, show this picture. And then uh, I think there's nothing to say. Uh, uh, and then I wish uh, to him always yeah, peace and uh, uh, rest in peace. And uh, I'm sure this institution will also follow his uh, huge uh, effort. Um, what we have in Turkey, it is very important. Uh, we had in Turkey, it's very important. In 2011, only 58,000 refugees. And then now we are talking about over 4 million, 5 million refugees. And then it is huge differences uh, since the beginning of the process. And it's also um, a social shock and we can also say that Turkey uh, is a victim of the open door policy, not only Turkey, but also Lebanon and then Jordan and the other neighboring countries as now the Poland um, as a neighbor country of the Ukraine. Uh, it is huge discussion about the um, responsibility sharing, burden sharing, and it's, it, is, uh, it is unfortunately not functional. It's unfortunately only some documents, et cetera, but we cannot see uh, this reality. The beginning of the process in Turkey, uh, it was also not too much problematic because everybody thought that it's a temporary issue and then they will send them, they go to, back to their countries, etc., etc. And then they were our guests in Turkey. And our government had also very emotional discourse for that. Uh, but uh, uh, when uh, come the reaction of the Turkish society, the Turkish society recognized since 2016, 17, they will stay forever in Turkey. And the numbers of the refugees in Turkey, it's really very huge. And then it is more than 5% of Turkish society. It is, we have to think about that because the numbers is the most important dominated factor for all huge uh, process. Uh, I summarized the, some numbers from uh, Syrians in Turkey. Uh, they are under temporary protection. We have also uh, around um, uh, 2,000, new Turkish citizens and they, uh, they, are, they are also an, another uh, new discussion topic in Turkey. And then the, the Syrians, they live with Turkish society together. Only 50,000 they live in refugee camps, but the other they live with Turks together in city centers. It's also very important for the social cohesion and the social acceptance. And um, some attractive numbers, for example, for uh, school age children, uh, over 1.2 million. And then now around 55, uh, 65%, uh, 730,000, uh, they have opportunity to go to school. It's very huge, very, uh, very also expensive process. And then till now in Turkey, we had more than 
765,000 babies, newborn babies. They were born in Turkey as a refugee. And uh, it is also another huge uh, challenge for Turkish society. They worked already in Turkey, around 1 million Syrians worked. Is it, is it a uh, contribution to the Turkish economy? I have doubt for that because the cost of the refugee issue is always much more bigger than their uh, contribution. And we have plus another refugees in Turkey from Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, etc., Pakistan. And their number, I mean, they, they, I mean their uh, official number is 330,000, but we have another dimension, it is irregular migrants. Anyway, the Turkey is now a refugee country, and uh, I think it will also continue. And as I said, we have also huge problem for the uh, newcomers uh, from Afghanistan, Pakistan, etc. And then it changed also the uh, attitude in Turkey and then the social uh, um, uh, acceptance level uh, for the Syrian refugees. The main group is Syrian, of course, in Turkey, but the number two is Afghani, and then number three is Pakistani refugees in Turkey. And one important issue also I have to mention, uh, Turkey didn't make any settlement program in Turkey for the refugees, for Syrian refugees, uh, because they thought that it's a temporary issue, etc. Then the uh, Syrians, they decide themselves uh, in which uh, city uh, they will stay. And because of that, we have huge uh, differences between the number of the refugees in the cities and the district level. It is also very difficult for the process management. And uh, now the limits of social acceptance and social cohesion, it is very important. And then um, I uh, published already an article and then about the sequestration uh, discussion. And then I have to also mention the sequestration comes sometimes from society. And it's also a very important issue. Uh, I know I have very little time. I have too much graphics. Sorry for that, but I will uh, skip one of them and then uh, maybe it will be also for you interesting. Uh, number one for the process management for the refugees and migrants. We are talking about uh, uh, refugees, not migrants. Especially if you are a neighbor country and you have no choice, you cannot also uh, make a plan. You can also uh, not uh, make an easily and uh, uh, settlement system, etc. It's very important. And the second is number. Uh, if we have a uh, 50,000, 100,000, you can manage. But if you have uh, more than millions, then it is very difficult. And then it's very typical warriors, basic warriors, loss of job, uh, increase the criminality, etc., etc. They are all we have already in Turkey. And the most important factor on whole issue is social acceptance level. But we can see also in Turkey very huge references between the beginning of the process and then now. I'm doing so-called Syrian barometer surveys, and then I will give uh, you some uh, details, some numbers from my surveys. It's been series since 2013, and then each year I, we are doing one more time with support of UNHCR. And we try to uh, make a framework for achieving social cohesion with Syrians in Turkey. And then describing Syrians is uh, also very important for the Turkish society. The Syrians was the beginning of the process, guests, etc., but now dangerous people. It is very huge reference. And then for cultural similarity, it is also not important for Turkish society. In opposite, the Turkish society, the Syrians not 
culturally similar. And then I think the cultural similarity is a very emotional issue. It is helpful for beginning of the process, but after that, it is not easy. And supporting Syrians, the Turkish society supporting Syrians more than 40%, but every day we have less support. And then social distance is huge between Turks and then Syrians. It's also another important issue. And then the Turkish society has really huge concerns, worries. And then it's very important. We have to um, respect this anxiety of the society. It should be taken seriously and attention should be given. It is also very important for the integration uh, process. For work permits, half of the Turkish society, over 40%, they, uh, they say no. For uh, open workshop, it is more stronger uh, no. And then it is maybe very important. If we ask the Turkish society, where should Syrians live? Uh, it can't always uh, wish to send back to uh, Syria or an isolation. And it is over 85%. And it affects, of course, also the politicians. And then we have also a lot analyzes political party basis. This AK party and then uh, MHP, they are now uh, government parties. And then their people is also very uh, against the refugee policy in Turkish society. And um, can we uh, live with them peacefully? The Turkish society say no. And then the, uh, how important the refugees issue in Turkey, now it is uh, the most important uh, third problem in Turkey. And then it makes also a huge discussion in Turkish society. Political rights, etc. It is everything is very, very uh, negatively. I have to say that. And then if we ask to the Syrians, what is their life and then um, what is their problem? They complain about uh, working conditions because they are working mostly uh, irregularly in Turkey. And uh, also it's very expensive for them. Accommodation is very problematic, et cetera, et cetera. But in the last survey, we can see their uh, worries, uh, their problems with Turkish society is a little bit stronger than before. Because of that, they try to find another solution, for example, go to the third country. They wish double citizenship in Turkey, if it is possible, and their return tendencies is very few now. We can see the tendencies here very clearly. Um, the Syrians, they don't want to go to back uh, to their uh, country voluntarily, of course. And uh, because of that, the Turkish society should see also this reality, and then we have to also make integration policies. And uh, uh, last issue, uh, for integration process, most important is social acceptance level and resilience of the host community, I think it's very important. We have 4 million refugees in Turkey, and then more than 4 million actually. And uh, if you look at the education level, it is unfortunately a disaster. And then we have to also take it. That. And then for uh, international uh, burden or responsibility sharing is un unfortunately only a fantasy. And because of that, the Turkey and then the others refugee hosting countries, uh, they have already their own problem and a plus refugee issue. And it uh, makes also difficult for, uh, uh, for a uh, sustainable uh, solution. And for sustainable solution, as you know, UNSCI gives three options. One is voluntary return, and then second is resettlement, and then third is integration policies. Voluntary return is 
impossible now. And then the second is resettlement is almost no option now in the world. You, you know that. Even uh, UK uh, tried to send uh, the refugees to Rwanda. It is not easy. And then third one is integration policies. For Turkish society, as an academics and then as a Turks in this country, I give always this advice. We have no other opportunity for a better life, for a peaceful life in our future. We should make integration policies. It is, uh, it is unnecessary. It is, it is an, not a uh, political choice, uh, but it is in, now in Turkey uh, with this political environment, It's also very difficult because each day we have in Turkey a discussion, huge discussion about the refugees. And then it will also problem for Turkish democracy. We will also lost some rules and then some important tools of Turkish societies during this uh, uh, process. And it's also one of the biggest uh, problems of our society. Thank you very much. Sorry, I think I talk a little bit more. Sorry. Thank you, Murat. I think um, this this presentation could have been a seminar in and of itself. Um, so I know you know it's difficult to to just focus in on a few issues. Um, I thought it was really powerful how you illustrated um, a, a parallel to what Agnieszka was talking about in terms of you know a, a prevailing assumption that people will go home and that we don't need to make long-term preparations and that, um, you know, that moment where we're no longer talking about people as guests, as temporary visitors, um, but actually have to switch to making a long-term program. Um, and, um, and perhaps, you know, the fact that the government did not announce that long-term plan from the beginning has contributed to this growing Uh, decline in social acceptance from the beginning of the crisis until now. I also thought it was really interesting that you pointed out um, that there's a perception of greater social distance between uh, Turks and Syrians. And so things like cultural similarity or religious um, affinity that we assume to be fixed um, can themselves change and ebb and flow um, and uh, gain or recede in importance. Um, so I th thought that was a very interesting point. Um, we are going to move into questions and answers now. We have received a lot of questions um, from, from the audience. Um, I know there's a lot of um, interest in all the themes that you've brought up. I think we will go over by just five minutes if folks can Um, can bear with us. Um, we probably won't be able to get to all the questions. I'm going to try to group some together so that we can get to as many um, as possible. Um, there's an interesting set of questions around control. Um, so one um, participant asks uh, a question for Steve about you know, what does control mean um, when you talk about it in your survey? Limited numbers or just knowing who comes in, being able to regulate entry um, uh, and exit conditions. Um, and then there are some other questions um, that I think we can group into this. One related to how should governments speak about control um, and how do we balance 
um, these um, issues of demonstrating that the government is in charge without resorting to uh, the language of securitization or criminalization. Um, and uh, related to that, do we have different strategies for needing to demonstrate control for different groups? Uh, thanks. Well, I mean, just to answer the question very specific, specifically, there's a big question. Um, the very specific question in our polling, um, control is specifically about the UK government having uh, control over who can and can't come to the UK, not control meaning reducing numbers. And in fact, in one of the questions we asked a binary, would you prefer a system that is based on control or would you prefer a system that is based on reducing numbers? And people choose control over numbers. And that was quite surprising because our, uh, certainly in Britain, a lot of our immigration narrative had been very much dominated by a numbers debate, particularly because the government had set this unreachable target of net migration going below 100,000. And, and a lot of this for in, the Brit in Britain was tied up with uh, our membership of the EU. We had freedom of movement and control was seen as a as, a, as something that, that was an alternative to, to, to freedom of movement. Because one of the ways of presenting this is that control means being able to say yes to migration as well as being able to say no. And this is something we've been quite keen to point out is that actually the first major um, decision post-Brexit of our government, of the UK government, was to say yes to um, you know, up to several million Hong Kongers having the right to move, uh, live, work and study in, in the UK. Um, so control can mean uh, more migration. It doesn't necessarily mean less migration. It just, it just means that you, have, you are legislating over, 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 over who comes. Um, and that was an important point because control seemed to be very important to the public and it was a way of not shutting down that debate. Thank you so much. Um, that was really insightful. Um, switching now to um, some questions around the grassroots response in Poland. Um, we uh, have a question from uh, David Manikam um, about um, uh, some of the things you said, Agnieszka, about how refugees are being housed in people's private homes right now. Um, some might prefer to be in um, government-run centers. There are some issues around privacy, what you mentioned about specific services that might be needed for particularly vulnerable groups that can't be offered um, by private citizens. Um, however, um, this is sort of needed right now to make up this gap in overall capacity. Um, so, um, David points out that it's easy to say that government doesn't have a comprehensive system in place, um, but building one up is hardly simple or fast. Um, so how do we balance, um, and I think you're sort of at the crux of this work, how do we balance that grassroots response um, with what the government needs to do? In my opinion, but then uh, please um... Remember that this is my first humanitarian crisis ever that I'm facing. So basically on my very recent experience, I can say that what I would like to see is some kind of takeover initiative. Um, I also saw, saw a question about this funding for individuals, which has been installed. 
it's quite interesting that very few people benefit from this. Indeed, the government offered to pay uh, an equivalent of about $10, a little bit less per person per night, if you house a refugee. There are lots of practical issues and it is not an easy process to distribute this, this money or make it available uh, in a short time. But um, even with those uh, constraints, there, are, there is a much more limited interest in benefiting from this funding than we expected. It was an assumption from, from us that for a lot of people, this, this amount calculated per month for, per families that they house would make significant support for the family budget or even just to cover maintenance costs involved in housing a significant group in the house. Uh, but it seems that not very many people apply for this um, funding. What I also uh, see is that there is here, there was also, I saw a question on the chat about Ukrainian involvement. Uh, I think it's also important and plays a role in, in our response right now is that Poland has housed um, around 1.5 million Ukrainians before the war. And when the, the war erupted, we have seen actually two conflicting movements. So we had a flow of refugees from Ukraine to Poland, which were women and children. But on the other hand, we had um, a movement of men from Poland eastwards, or actually also for some women that also joined the army or, or perform medical functions um, during the war. So um, even with those that, that have left, we see a significant community of Ukrainians in Poland that play a crucial role in how the newly arrived uh, refugees are uh, accommodated. And also we see, as, as it was mentioned a few times already, that people have lots of conflicting feelings. So on one hand, the Ukrainian migrants who were here for years uh, really give a helping hand. And in very many initiatives, they are the driving force of the, of the systems that are being created. Uh, on the other hand, there are also hard feelings and it's, and it's difficult for the Ukrainians who have been here six months ago uh, to handle a legal discrepancy between their own situation and their legal status and the legal status of those that have arrived after the war. So it's a lot of generosity and, uh, and helping going on. But on the other hand, uh, we do have now several possibilities of a legal status of a Ukrainian and this is difficult. For them to to acknowledge this, um, maybe coming back to this to this initial question on on the response that we would like, I would like the government understanding that it is slow and understanding that the system takes time to develop and a lot of consultation and wisdom to make it sensible. Uh, I would like this process to start, and I think that three three months that we are into this war is really enough time to uh, set up. Um, working groups, consultation committees around certain topic or, or key topics that, that we have to solve. And I think that, for example, on, on the issue of accommodation, there must be a government plan where you accommodate these people when uh, this individual generosity will, will uh, withdraw or slow down because it is already happening and people do not have space where to direct their own guests that they cannot handle for many reasons, sometimes justified. Uh, I think it's also, well, we as humans are diverse by nature. And it's, it's also very visible in this situation that some people who have taken in uh, a person and are just tired with this, you can think that this is kind of, you know, irresponsible, 
not thoughtful decision and they have done something and now they have to pay the price. But then on the other hand, very often people are really facing super difficult situations. I'm uh, in touch, for example, with, with families who have taken in persons with disabilities and we have uh, persons who have left their wheelchair uh, on the other side of the border because it wouldn't fit in a bus. And you have children normally or adults normally moving on a wheelchair that are being transported by hands being carried into Poland and here you don't have a new wheelchair. And uh, I think that looking for these wheelchairs, just to maybe give this one example, should not be a sole responsibility of individuals. And uh, at the moment it is. We don't have this state kind of thing, state-run thinking or coordination efforts also of international giving. Maybe this is something I would, uh, for sure, I would like to mention this at this forum, that we, we also experience unprecedented um, wave of international support that, uh, that Poland receives. And we are all of a sudden important and all of a sudden, you know, uh, kind of pioneers of the, of the international uh, community doing what we are doing. But then I think that it also uh, requires coordination on who is giving what, whether this is appropriate, this, whether this is directed where it's needed. And at the moment, this international giving is also very chaotic and disorganized. I mean, we do have, believe me, I mean, I had personally had an experience of a person from Spain who came to me and said, hey, I have a plane and I can take 240 people on uh, Saturday. And I thought he is a crazy person. And then it turned out he is an absolutely healthy person who has links to a mayor in uh, a city in, in Spain. And this is what is happening. We have buses and trains and plane loads of people that uh, were leaving Poland because of, of this generosity and, and goodwill that arrived here. It was not even a matter of some, you know, lobbying or, or asking for relocation. It's, we have developed a, here locally a term that is spontaneous relocation because it is, it is super spontaneous. We have, I think the governments don't even know what has happened. And I think that also this, this um, coordination on a European level is super crucial because um, the states don't have tools or we're not also quick enough to react to this individual uh, burden sharing that has spontaneously developed in this, in this situation. But um, while it is welcome on one hand, on the other hand, it gives perfect space for human trafficking, for abuse, exploitation, anything unwanted that you can imagine. And this, this lack of coordination is basically of concern, I think, as, as much as it is a reason for, for joy. Thank you That's so much. <laughs> No, you've um, you've really given us so many rich insights. Um, and uh, there was a question in the chat um, about shouldn't we uh, try to make sure solidarity doesn't dissipate by creating a to do agenda for government from the bottom up um, as a way to sort of shore up the system. And I just want to point out that I think this is exactly the important work that you're doing. Um, so I just wanted to to acknowledge that. Um, I know we are um, 
over time, but I want to just ask one last question um, and give Murat a chance to have a final word as well. Um, so apologies for, for running over. Um, there's a question about how we weigh the costs versus benefits of welcoming refugees. Um, and you had mentioned in, um, in one of your slides um, something about the, you know, the direct costs um, of, of welcoming people in particular municipalities um, versus economic benefits that might not accrue, um, especially if people are working in, in irregular occupations. And so how do you make this shift in public mindsets um, to portray investing in integration as something that will have long-term benefits for societies? Um, Nathalie, it's a very important uh, topic, actually, for whole process, uh, benefits and then cost issue. But as we know, um, I cannot agree that the, we have a um, time welcoming refugees is cool and efficient. Um, I think it depends on uh, which refugees, <laughs> the numbers, it's very important. And then secondly, the general political of the, all the countries they were come for migrants because they have opportunity to choose and then they have opportunity to plan. But they say for refugees, no, it's very clearly. And then we see also this problem in Turkey. And of course, you can think about that it's a cheap worker and then they can contribute to the Turkish economy, et cetera, et cetera. But we have more than enough problem in Turkey and then more than 4 million uh, Turkish citizens, they are looking for a job places, et cetera. And then only education cost. I can give you a number. Uh, one normal uh, student at a Turkish uh, primary school or high school, it costs 1,000 euro per year uh, for government. And then we have around 730,000 Syrian uh, children, they visit Turkish schools. And then it costs per year 730 million euros per year. Okay. And then since the process, I can uh, give you also the other, uh, other numbers, but the cost is more than three, four billion uh, euro. It is uh, for Turkey too much money. Of course, it's the investment. We have also no other opportunity, especially for the education. It is, it is, we cannot ignore it. It's another issue. But it is too um, easy to say that, okay, but you have also cheap worker. You can also uh, get benefit from them. It's very difficult. Of course, we need good integration policies for next future. Uh, but international solidarity is, in this sense, very important. The international solidarity um, is almost only the financial solidarity. It's also very few. You can see also all settlement numbers. It is per year around 100,000. Um, even we have over uh, 82 million uh, refugees in the world. Word. It is not easy. And uh, if you have a problem, uh, your problem, and uh, then come the other problems more bigger. For example, Denmark, the, the prime minister from Denmark, she said that we don't want to have any refugees and then we will target a zero uh, refugee policy. And then they try to also send the refugees to Uganda. I mean, they can also talk about that. Oh, it's okay. It's a benefit for our economy or social society, etc. It is uh, too much fantasy, I think. The reality is very hard. And then reality is not only economic cost, 
economic cost only a part of the whole issue. The political cost and the social cost is much more important. If we talk about today in Turkey about the racism, it is a cost for Turkish democracy. It is also very important. Thank you for this opportunity. One more time. Thank you so much to all of you for these extremely rich remarks. Um, I won't try to sum this up since we've already gone so far over time, um, but thank you to everyone who participated uh, Who participated today. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of the questions. Um, an audio and video recording will be available um, on MPI's website tomorrow. Um, and please check out um, our new report also on the website, From Fear to Solidarity, the Difficulty in Shifting Public Narratives About Refugees. Thank you so much to all of you.